It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 324, the 2nd of December, 2012. This week, Windows 8. Are you wondering how to get there? The tale of an upgrade, making Windows 8 my own. Batting Outlook out of the park. And in short circuits, would this latest Facebook fraud fool you? Petraeus has just become a descriptive noun. Microsoft excited about tablets and phones, but unwilling to talk about sales figures. And some members of the United Nations would like to censor the Internet. When it comes to upgrading Windows from one major release to the next, Windows XP to Windows 7, for example, or Windows 7 to Windows 8, it's generally better, I think, to perform a new installation or wait until you buy a new computer. My experience with Windows 8 has been pretty much the same as it has been with earlier versions. Which process is right for you may depend on how you use your computer. When Windows 8 was released to Microsoft TechNet subscribers, I ran the upgrade process on two notebook computers, but in both cases I followed the upgrade by formatting the computer's hard drive and performing a clean installation. It just works better that way. In late November, when I upgraded some of the hardware on a desktop computer, installing a solid-state drive as the boot device, that ensured that Windows 8 would be installed on a clean disk. But it's worth noting that I did not upgrade this computer to Windows 8 until I changed the hardware. The desktop system sees a lot of change. Programs are installed for testing and then removed, and this can lead to a somewhat tangled registry. After three years, it was time for a fresh installation, new hardware or not. Considering that the process of formatting the drive and reinstalling the operating system was something that seemed to be necessary about every six months under Windows 95, we've come a long way since then. If I used the desktop computer the way most people use a computer, it's likely that it would live its entire life without ever needing to go through this process. The way most people use a computer is this. The new computer comes home, it's plugged in, over its life the owner will add a few programs, update a few programs, and that's pretty much it. In other words, what happens to most computers over a three to five year period? Well, it can happen to my desktop system in just a few weeks. So maybe an upgrade to Windows 8 will work for you. In any event, it's worth a try. You always need to be prepared to format the hard drive and perform a clean installation, but if the upgrade works, the shorter process will save you hours of setup time. And if it fails, you'll have spent only an hour or so on a process, so it's not an unreasonable gamble. Before any upgrade, it's essential that you have a complete backup of all data on the computer. Formatting the drive will, of course, delete everything on it. And that's one reason that I keep the operating system and applications on one disk and all data on other disk drives. Even if you have just a single physical disk, it's possible to partition the drive so that the operating system and the programs are on one partition that can be formatted separately whenever you want, and your photos, your music, your movies, spreadsheets, letters, all that stuff will be stored on another logical drive that doesn't need to be formatted. So which way should you go? 
Well, if you don't plan to switch from a 32-bit operating system to a 64-bit operating system, or if your Windows 7 computer already is running a 64-bit version, well, an upgrade would definitely make sense. But if you've seen the need for additional resources that a 64-bit system can provide, you'll need not only a clean installation, but also some new hardware. Having used the new Microsoft Upgrade Assistant twice, I'm impressed by how well it works. If you have applications that won't work under Windows 8, the Assistant will probably provide a list. The list will explicitly state which applications, if any, need to be upgraded or uninstalled before you proceed. And you might see a short list of applications that the Assistant is unsure about. One mistake that some people make when upgrading is failing to schedule enough time for the job. Assume that something will go wrong. Allow enough time to format the drive and perform a clean installation if that becomes necessary. In other words, don't start the process on Sunday evening with plans to be finished in time to prepare a presentation for Monday morning. An upgrade that proceeds without issue can be complete in an hour or less. This, of course, depends on the speed of your computer. But if you have to format the drive, reinstall the operating system, install your applications, configure the applications, restore data from backup devices, that process is going to take several hours, and it might extend over several days. Over the years, I've developed a process by which I can install Windows and the most critical applications, the ones that I need many times every day, in about 90 minutes. By the end of an eight-hour day, nearly everything I need will be restored, but probably not configured. Over about a two-week period, I'll complete the restoration and setup processes. So plan to spend some time tinkering with the machine, even after the operating system installation is complete. Depending on your level of knowledge and interest, you might find yourself wishing, as I did, that Microsoft would be a bit more forthcoming with information. A message that says, Taking care of a few things is enough to tell you that something's happening. But it would be helpful to know what. Should something go wrong, taking care of a few things doesn't really provide any useful information about where the process went wrong. During the installation, you'll need to decide whether you want to use a cloud-based login. And I think there's a pretty practical way to make that decision. If you have just a single computer, it doesn't matter. But if you have several computers or you plan to add more Windows computing devices, phones, tablets, things like that, then the cloud-based login offers the real advantage of allowing you to synchronize settings between various computers. If you don't have any strong feelings one way or the other, use your Microsoft account. Settings you change on one computer will be replicated on the others. You may find that you want to restrict some of the settings to a particular computer, and Microsoft does provide a way to do that. You'll have to dig a bit, but you can turn off specific options within synchronization settings to accomplish just exactly what you want. And Windows 8 comes with Internet Explorer 10. Free of additional charge, you receive two versions of Internet Explorer 10. Yes, two versions. One variant runs under the Metro or Modern interface, the other runs on the desktop. My preference is to avoid Internet Explorer whenever possible, but it's still the most used browser, so let's consider the implications of version 10. It's been around for a while. Microsoft actually released it in April 2011 for Windows 7, but recent additions and improvements are for Windows 8 users only. 
IE10 improves support for the third version of the cascading style sheet specification. It supports HTML5 more fully, and it provides some hardware acceleration for the rendering engine. In mid-November, Microsoft released a new preview version of IE10 for Windows 7, and if you're planning to stick with Windows 7 for a while and you use Internet Explorer, you should definitely consider upgrading to IE10 because that version of the browser provides security and performance improvements. Specifically, IE10 addresses the problem of threats that involve social engineering. SmartScreen Filter warns about phishing and malware sites, for example. And by default, IE10 sends a do-not-track flag to every website. If you want to allow tracking, you need to turn it on for the site. The modern or metro version of IE10 is built for touch devices, and it provides better multi-touch support than other browsers. Incidentally, this is something that has garnered complaints from the other browser publishers who claim that Microsoft kept secret from them the Application Programming Interface, or API, that they needed to create multi-touch support. Would Microsoft do that? In a word, yes. So for now, IE10 is the leader in multi-touch support, but expect the other browsers to catch up, and fairly soon. If you're thinking about upgrading to Windows 8, I hope that my experiences will be helpful. There are significant differences between Windows 7 and Windows 8, but the one that seems to have caught everyone's attention is that the Start menu no longer exists, and many consider this to be a disaster. I have to admit that I was among that crowd a year ago, but today my position is this. A Windows installation without a Start menu is like a fish without a bicycle. Really. If you look at some of my earlier commentaries on Windows 8, and there's a link to them from the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that I initially felt Microsoft was making a terrible mistake. Well, that's no longer the case. Now that I have Windows 8 on a desktop, I've become a bit more serious, though, about finding keyboard shortcuts. Pressing the Windows key switches immediately to the desktop on the desktop computer, but for some reason this doesn't work on notebooks. It might be a feature of the Enterprise Edition, which is installed on the desktop, but on any Windows 8 machine, just pressing the Windows key and D, as in desktop, will switch you directly to the desktop. So if you miss the desktop, just press the Windows key and D when Metro shows its pretty interface, and you'll go right to the desktop. Problem solved. Also, I think what many people miss is that the Start screen is really just a screen size Start menu. You'll see my start screen on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll actually see what's on both monitors, the start screen on the left, and some running programs on the desktop on the right. I kept some of the Metro apps that I like and created groups for the primary applications, then for utilities and for a few other groups. Even though I created these groups, I have pinned most of the applications that I use frequently to the taskbar on the desktop. In other words, it's just like Windows 7, except that there's not any little circular icon in the left lower corner. And if there's an application that's not immediately available in either location, just pressing the Windows key followed by the first few letters of the program name allow me to start it. For example, the Windows key in EAR starts Google Earth. Actually, I could use just the Win key in EA. 
Or I can use the Windows key and WO to get Word, the Windows key and EXC to get Excel. This is difficult? This is confusing? So it's a few keystrokes, but it's considerably faster to press four or five keystrokes than to take your hands off the keyboard, find the mouse, move the cursor to the Start menu, click the Start menu, click All Programs, click Google, then click Google Earth, even though those who praise the Start menu will try to tell you otherwise. Five quick keystrokes will always be taking your hands off the keyboard, positioning the mouse, clicking, repositioning the mouse, clicking, repositioning the mouse, and clicking. How much faster is this? Oh, maybe a thousand to two thousand milliseconds. Maybe one to two seconds. In other words, this is a major non-issue that some pundits seem to be pushing relentlessly. And I don't understand why. Among the Metro apps I retained is Weather, but it turned out to be somewhat disappointing. The Weather applet is, of course, a full-screen application. A lot of real estate there. But for reasons known only in Redmond, it's possible to select only 11 locations. I had visions of filling a screen with maybe 20 or 30 locations, just because I'm interested in what the weather's like in other parts of the planet. And when I tried to add a 12th location, Windows warned me it couldn't do that. When I was thinking about performing the upgrade, I contacted TCR about upgrading the three-year-old system. I mentioned a faster CPU, a new mainboard, increased RAM, more disk storage. But I neglected to say anything about a solid-state drive, even though I've written about those devices. Fortunately, TCR's Marshall Thompson described how he had improved the performance of a small netbook computer by adding a solid-state drive and asked if I would consider adding one. Well, I did, and the change has been dramatic. I start a lot of applications automatically at boot time because it saves time later when I need them. But this also makes the boot process more than a bit tedious. The computer is all but unusable for 10 to 15 minutes. To counteract that, I load yet another application called Startup Delayer, and it can start applications at specific times. So essential programs started immediately, and applications that I usually don't need for a while are delayed for 5 minutes or 10 minutes, or in a few cases, 30 minutes. Although I've installed Startup Delayer on the Windows 8 computer, only a few programs are currently set to be delayed, because I've noticed that the boot time remains really fast, even with all those essential applications starting at the same time. In previous years, my recommendation for accelerating a computer involved adding more RAM, and that's still a good idea. Any 32-bit system that has less than 4 gigabytes of RAM should be upgraded to that amount, which is the maximum a 32-bit system can address. Any 64-bit system that has less than 4 gigabytes of RAM should be upgraded to at least 4 gigabytes, and preferably 6 or 8. In my case, 32. But another improvement that's well worth considering is adding a solid-state drive. Most computer cases can hold at least two hard drives, so installing a solid-state drive, cloning the operating system from the existing drive to the new drive, and then using the old hard drive for data storage is a quick and reasonably painless way to go. If you're not comfortable performing surgery on the computer, find a local technician who is. And in the process of upgrading to Windows 8, I made some backup changes. Good backup means never having to say you're sorry. And I've managed to avoid disasters by maintaining a system of backups. First, there are local hot backups of all working files for immediate recovery. They're on drives that are sitting right beside the computer. They don't really count as backup. 
I also have backup disk drives that are stored at the office. They come home once a week. Website files are additionally backed up to a non-public area of the server. And then I use Carbonite's online backup service to essentially backup the local backups. This process means that losing critical data would require that files be lost or damaged on the computer, on the hot backup drives, on the drives stored at the office, on Carbonite, and for websites, on the non-public area of the web server. As part of the upgrade process, I retired one older hot backup drive and assigned a newer drive to the drives that are stored at the office. Two new hot backup drives, a matched set, are in place. They take advantage of faster USB 3 connectivity, and they provide nearly enough storage space to back up both of the internal drives, even if they're full, which I hope they never will be. It's still possible for me to do something incredibly stupid and lose a file, but I've done my best to stack the deck against stupidity. Is it time to think about Outlook? When I installed Windows 8 on the desktop computer and followed that with Office 2013, the time did seem right to take a look at Outlook. Although I'm required to use Outlook at the office, and I like the calendar and contact sections of Outlook, I've never been able to make peace with the email component. Maybe the 2013 version would be different, I thought. Setting up my four primary email accounts was easy enough, but Outlook places the data files on the C drive by default. In the new computer, the C drive is a relatively small 500-gigabyte solid-state drive, and I didn't want to waste precious SSD space with email and organizer files. I wanted them on the standard drives, the ones with the spinning platters. Moving the Outlook data files to another drive should be easy. Should be. It wasn't. The process took nearly three hours and required several trips to Microsoft's support site and to several other sites where I found various and often conflicting recommendations. I like the fact that Outlook handles HTML email beautifully, but I receive a lot of mail and I use an extensive set of filters to sort messages into various folders in the bat. I'm familiar with setting up Outlook filters, but replicating what would be simple filters in the bat seemed impossible. The filters I wanted to create certainly can be created, but after several hours I had two filters that worked as desired, and one that, despite more than an hour's worth of tinkering, still failed miserably. When I receive spams, it's sometimes useful to look at the message source. In the bat, pressing F9 immediately displays the source, both the headers and the message text, even if the message is a multi-part document with an HTML component and a plain text component. Outlook requires drilling down several layers just to display the headers, and that's all it can display. No method exists by which one can view the actual message body's source. And so I'm sticking with the bat. Is it superior? Well, it depends on your point of view. The bat has no calendar. It has no task list. It offers a directory function that's far weaker than Outlook's contacts. And the display, although much improved over the years, still isn't what anyone would call pretty. What it offers is immense programmability via scripting, macros, and quick templates. 
it's reasonably safe to say that anyone who wants to do anything with the bat will probably be able to find a way to do it. Some of these capabilities can be achieved in Outlook by using third-party applications such as Macro Express, and Outlook does integrate its email closely with calendars, scheduling, and the other parts of Outlook. Despite the conferencing functions and the links to contacts and the calendar, Outlook still comes up far short on the features that I need every day. At the office, we're connected to an Exchange server, and that makes Outlook the preferred email client. Indeed, it's the only email client that I'm permitted to use by corporate IT. In some ways, Outlook is the Rolls-Royce of email programs. It's pleasing to look at, but not particularly practical. The bat, on the other hand, is simultaneously a Ferrari, yes, it's that fast, and a heavy-duty truck. It can be used for so many different tasks. So, the bottom line? Well, Outlook 2013 is still lookout to me. One of the newspapers in Toronto referred to this program as Microsoft Lookout at least 15 years ago. I've always liked that particular twist on Outlook's name. In short circuits, I wonder if the latest Facebook fraud would fool you. Probably not. You've seen these ploys deconstructed on TechBiter Worldwide before, and this one is really nothing special. It's a bit different in that it very closely mimics the appearance of a message from Facebook, but the fact that it comes from an individual user at AOL, that should be enough to warn you away from the link. If not, then hovering your mouse over the link will quickly reveal that it goes to globaltradealert.org a website that's probably been victimized by crooks. Now, it's possible that the crooks set up Global Trade Alert, but that's not something that can be easily determined, so we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. One of my favorite tools for examining rogue sites is Microsoft's PowerShell. That's a replacement for the command prompt, which still exists. PowerShell offers numerous additional features, including the ability to read a website and save the text as a variable. Once you've done that, you can dump the text to the screen or save it to a text file that can be examined safely. A good sign that this site is up to no good is the fact that it contains a redirect, but that's as far as my investigation went. In some cases, these redirects simply take you to a site that's trying to sell generic Viagra, generally spelled Vigra, and of course no such thing exists. This redirect, however, specifies a PHP page, and those can hide bad code. The person who created the email message already lied to me about the source of the message and now is trying to redirect my browser from one site to another site that's in Russia? So no thanks. to think that generals who serve in hostile parts of the planet during wars and who then become head of the Central Intelligence Agency have a certain degree of intelligence when it comes to security. 
The Petraeus soap opera suggests otherwise, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation has come to the rescue with a tutorial called Don't Be a Petraeus, a tutorial on anonymous email accounts. Where was this article when the general needed it? The article notes that members of the Senate Judiciary Committee who reviewed current laws on email privacy this week and who then recommended increased privacy to the full Senate probably didn't have the Petraeus affair in mind, but it is a backdrop for the Senate hearings. During the investigation, the FBI obtained email messages from CIA Director David Petraeus, Paula Broadwell, Jill Kelly, and General John Allen. If nothing else, this clearly illustrates two points. First, current laws allow investigators to have broad and deep access to email. And second, all email is about as private as a postcard. Those who understand how computers and networks function have known about that second point for decades, and processes do exist by which email messages can be encrypted, but most of these have been so much trouble to use that they haven't really been used by most people, not even by CIA directors. The Electronic Frontier Foundation's tutorial on anonymous email accounts is worth your time, even if you never send an email message that contains information that you might not want to see on the front page of the New York Times. What you'll find is that the process still isn't exactly easy. But if you're in line for a top government position and you want to keep certain aspects of your private life somewhat private, the FBI does still have the capability to work around even most of those precautions, well, then you should consider setting up a process by which you can communicate securely. At Microsoft's annual stockholders meeting, CEO Steve Ballmer said that he should have moved faster to transition the company so that it could take advantage of portable computing, and in particular, tablet-based computing that's a piece of the market dominated by Apple's iPad. After all, Bill Gates started talking about tablet computing a decade ago, but the company was unprepared or unable to make progress on that front, possibly in part because of the Vista misstep that required a great deal of time and attention to fix. Ballmer said, and I quote, We are innovating on the seam between software and hardware, and if anyone can tell me what that means in plain English, I would appreciate it. The smaller and weaker of Microsoft's new Surface tablets is now on sale, but the more powerful version probably won't be on sale until the first quarter of 2013. That leaves the holiday market largely to Apple. Ballmer says that smartphones running the new Windows 8 software are selling four times as many devices as there were this time last year. Well, by that account, Microsoft must have sold at least, oh, a good 135 phones by now. The company isn't announcing sales figures for phones or tablets. More than 2 billion people around the world use the Internet now, and there is no central administration, never has been. 
The Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN, is probably the closest thing to a governing body, and its primary goal is simply to maintain stable operations. No national or international body controls the content. In Dubai, capital of the United Arab Emirates, a nearly two-week session of the World Conference on International Telecommunications is about to get underway. The expectation is that the conference will consider, among other topics, censorship. At previous sessions, U.S. and other Western members have managed to hold the line against censorship despite attempts by nations such as Iran, China, and Russia to impose it. In theory, no individual nation would be bound by any decision made by the conference, and the structure of the Internet allows it to route around damage. And let's face it, the network considers censorship to be damage. Even so, individual nations can, and some already have, instituted some forms of censorship. Consider, for example, the Great Firewall of China. My opinion? Additional restrictions will not serve anyone or any nation well, so I'm hoping that the Western delegations will continue to defeat any international attempts to impose censorship. Unfortunately, the conference sessions are not open to the public, and that's not a good sign. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.